Well, there is absolutely no truth to the fact that um, <clears throat> Joe wanted as many people to attend this optional session as possible, so he cut the power lines. But, you know, <laughs> there is nothing to that rumor, absolutely none. But nevertheless, I thought uh, what I'm going to do is when I give him today the uh, thumb drive, which he'll put on his computer, I will give, in this case, the entire lecture I could have given if we had two hours. So I'm going to cut both of these essentially in half so that we can cover it, because we do have water fort and who knows what else coming up here. So those are all important. So you will see about uh, two-thirds or a half of each one of the ones that will be on the presentation, so you can read a little bit more. This one, what I took out is all my stuff about Isaac and Ishmael and the Palestinians and those kinds of things, and just focused a lot of our time and attention on Libya and Egypt and what's going on in the Middle East. And as you heard me say last night, when we talk about Libya, even as we talk about its biblical history, it is really striking because Libya is mentioned many times in the Bible. Now, I bet if I came up to any of you and said, is Egypt mentioned in the Bible? You go, of course, yes, Moses, you know, and all the things about Egypt. But if I said, is Libya in the Bible? Some of you might go, well, I'm not so sure. But uh, it turns out that that's the case. In Matthew 27, Simon of Cyrene, Cyrene was actually part of ancient Libya, in a minute, I'll explain a little bit more about how extensive that was. But we see that he was the man who carried the cross of Jesus. Then when you talk about um, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, it tells us that they were God-fearing men from Libya in the audience. So Libya was one of the places where they went. Some of those individuals we find out later, those Libyan followers in Acts 11, were those who helped establish what later came to be known as the church in Antioch and brought the gospel to Antioch. Later, we learned that Lucius of Cyrene, which is part of Libya, is one of the leaders in the church in Antioch that helped send Barnabas and Paul on the missionary journey. So, obviously, you know that the Bible says a, a good deal about Egypt, but it also says quite a bit about Libya as well. When we talk about it in the Old Testament, first of all, we learn that if you look at your Bibles, and you might even turn occasionally to it, sometimes your Bible, depends on which translation you have, we'll call it put. Well, it turns out that Put is another name for Libya. And the reason for that is Put was the third son of Ham. Remember that Noah had three sons, Ham, Sham, and Japheth. Well, Ham's third son, Put, came and settled in present day where we would call Libya. So Libya sometimes is called Libyos, which we'll see in just a minute, or Put as well. And then, since this is a Bible church, I might not do this in a Presbyterian church, there's some prophetic aspects of this as well. Because Ezekiel 38 and 39, which I'll come back to a little bit later, talks about the war of Gog and Magog, in which you have a Russian-Persian alliance, which also involves Libya. And so that could be something that happens. Some people have suggested it happens either before or after the rapture. Most people think it would happen after the rapture, maybe early in the tribulation. There's some data, debate about that. That's where you have an intramural debate. But I'll try to be fair to present the different sides in just a minute. And so you have Libya involved in this battle, which God super and supernaturally intervenes in and brings destruction. And then also you have a statement, interestingly enough, in, da in Daniel 11 about Libya. And here, when the Antichrist is in power... It says that he will have his way. He will actually put the Libyan people under submission during this time of the tribulation and also take their gold and silver. We'll look more at that in just a minute. But the point I'm making is, is when you talk about biblical history, it is amazing that Libya does show up a number of times.
But the current, current, uh, current conflict all the way goes back to Colonel Qaddafi. He actually came into positions of leadership in 1969. He overthrew the king and established what was called the Libyan Arab Republic and uh, was already a threat in that particular region for a number of years. When I was at the Reagan Library just two weeks ago, they actually have the plane that was used, one of the planes that was used. You might remember when they flew from, the, from Britain to bomb Libya in 1986. This was after uh, Muammar Gaddafi had actually blown up a discotheque. They had to fly around uh, France because France wouldn't grant them airspace. They had to fly through Spain. But anyway, I got to see one of those planes. That was in 1986. You might remember 1988. Suzanne and I, when we were in England, saw where the Lockerbie Pan Am uh, 103 went down because of a Libyan who was responsible, who has been incarcerated up until last year and then was released because theoretically he was dying of cancer, but he's still alive. Matter of fact, the rebels say they're not going to turn him back over to the British. And But, but uh, bringing us up to date, uh, this year there were protests in Tunisia that began to spill over into Libya. And because of that, the United States, uh, through NATO, got involved, and the rebel leaders are able to, at this point, to put Gaddafi's family and him on the run. We don't know the final outcome, but the impact of this could be very significant. Because, first of all, Colonel Gaddafi not only posed a threat in the Middle East, but also has developed alliances with Russia. And this is where people like Joel Rosenberg, I don't know if anybody's ever read any of Joel Rosenberg's book, Epicenter, or any of his fictional books, has said that this is kind of coalescing very much around Ezekiel 38 and 39. Because, after all, Russia and Libya have developed some very close alliances. I used to have people disagree with that, but that's why I put that picture up there. Once you see Vladimir Putin right next to Muammar Gaddafi, you realize, okay, those alliances which people would never have predicted, I mean, think about it. What does Russia really have in common with Libya? It's sort of a terrorist nation. And so that was certainly the case. Uh, I noticed that um, Joe was wearing something that says Uganda. When our people have gone to Uganda, they've noticed that uh, a lot of places in Africa, but especially in Uganda, uh, Muammar Gaddafi has built these mosques. And one of the things that has been a major impediment to the advancement of the gospel has simply been that he will build these beautiful mosques. You go into some of these towns like in Uganda, and it's amazing because the uh, nicest building is a mosque. They will pay off many of the people in the town to become Muslims, and then they sort of have them caught. Uh, provide them food at a discount. And so Muammar Gaddafi has not only been influential in a negative way in terms of international policy, he has certainly been somebody that has, I think, hurt the advance of the gospel in Africa. So his um, exit might be a good idea. Well, okay, the fall of Tripoli, as well as the possible removal of Muammar Gaddafi, has brought all sorts of speculation. As I say there, kind of jokingly, we've had as many different interpretations of what might happen as we have different spellings of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, that name is spelled a lot different, and it's kind of hard to make firm predictions, but here, let me make a few. It does seem to me that even if the rebel forces... Uh, have some kind of desire to move in a democratic direction. There are just a lot of people that wonder if there are radical Muslim elements, maybe those from the Muslim Brotherhood, that are behind all of this that would want to turn Libya into another Iran. And so we have to be very cautious about saying that maybe they would move in a democratic way. And I think the reason for that is, is that you can ask this fundamental question. How many Arab states do we have right now that have implemented democratic values, religious tolerance, rights for individuals like even women after a revolution? And the answer isn't very good. 
And uh, so you have to say it's hard really to grow a democracy on Muslim soil because democratic values are based on things like one person, one vote, equal protection, constitutional guarantees for human rights. Those are very much foreign. And frankly, in Arab countries where you have Sharia law, that's an attempt to take the Quran and implement that into a country, uh, they value still a testimony of a man over a woman, according to the uh, Quran. And also, you can find that a little bit in the Hadith. The idea is a man's testimony is worth twice of a woman's. Okay, well, that kind of invalidates the idea of equal protection, a one-person, one-vote. They certainly don't uh, uh, guarantee the same kind of human rights to infidels as they do to Muslims because of this idea of dimitude. And so, again, I, you have to recognize that the question about Libya in the future is a big question mark. We would hope that there are people in those rebel groups that are future Alexander Hamiltons and James Madisons, but I sincerely doubt it. And as we look a little bit more about what's happening in Egypt in just a minute, I think you can see why that is the case. But what is the prophetic future? Well, it does seem to me that if you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, we see that Put or Libya is one of the nations uh, that actually joins kind of a Russian-Persian alliance and we know that uh, Put is Libya because if you go back to Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, in his Antiquities of the Jews, he actually refers to Put as ancient Libyos. And at that time, Libya was a little bit bigger. It's hard to imagine. Libya is a very big country. It's one of the biggest countries in northern Africa. Egypt and Libya take up most of northern Africa. Uh, but at that time, Libya also included all of what we would call Algeria and a little bit of what we call Tunisia. So it was a very large country. And as a result, when it's speaking about that country, if indeed you believe that Ezekiel 38 and 39 have yet to be fulfilled in our future prophecy, then it would certainly say that there is a lineup of something like that as well. Now, whatever happens in Libya, I think it's fair to say that the prophecy is, is that they will sometime be part of this war of Gog and Magog. If you've read anything about that or read others that have written about that, uh, Ron Rhodes has written a very good book called Northern Storm, uh, um, Northern Storm Rising and some others that have identified you know, the various elements of Ezekiel 38 and 39. You see that this is a defeat, actually, of this coalition between Russia and many of these Muslim groups. Now, there's some that actually argue that that might explain why you don't hear so much about Islam in the book of Revelation. Some of you said you've been studying the book of Revelation. You know, once you get past about Revelation 3 or 4, it's real Jewish, but you don't really run into too many Muslims, although it does talk about people being beheaded, so maybe that's the case. But some people wonder if this war of Gog and Magog, when God defeats it, he defeats a lot of the Muslim armies, it, if you will, takes the steam out of some of the Muslim advance. Because right now it is the second largest religion in the world. And I do believe that when the rapture comes, that um, there might be a few Muslims that leave because they've converted to Christianity. But pretty much it's a religion that will stay intact. Uh, when you talk about Christianity, now I recognize there'll be some churches which will be totally intact after the rapture, but you know, uh, um, most will be rather decimated, and certainly America certainly could be. So you can see that that might be an explanation. But the other one I mentioned real quickly is Daniel 11, 
Because we learn there that Libya is one of the countries that will actually be under the control of the Antichrist. Makes sense if he sets up his uh, kingdom out of Jerusalem and has a ten-nation confederacy, which I would believe would be uh, Europe. But it also says the Antichrist will enter the beautiful land and stretch out his hand against other countries. And it even says that he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans. Some of your translations will say put and the Ethiopians, and Cush, in your translation, Cush was probably Ethiopia and part of Sudan, is the way that would align today. So it certainly would suggest to me that as we look at Libya, it's a real prayer target, isn't it? And I would certainly pray right now for the missionaries who are there in northern Africa. Some of them are there um, really as tent makers, uh, but even we've had some Dallas Seminary professors that have been able to make it to Morocco and Tunisia, but I would hope that we could raise up missionaries or perhaps even pray for those that are there. Because right now with the turmoil, it's sort of an open door. But if this begins to be another Islamic theocracy, I think that door will close. So if you're looking for some action points, certainly the first one I want to put on the table is to pray for missionaries that might be in northern Africa or who would want to go to northern Africa. Which brings me to the other country I want to put on the table here, and that is the country of Egypt. You know it's biblical past, so I'll skip there, but I'll talk about its political past because it's a little more detailed. Um, this whole region for a while after World War II was in turmoil because originally you had the Ottoman Turks controlling a lot of the area, and then afterwards there was some changes, but certainly after World War II you still had a king, but he eventually was deposed in 1952. Some of you are old enough to remember Gamal Abdel Nasser came into power in 1952. His uh, first act that caused an international crisis was that he nationalized the Suez Canal in 1956. He had already developed a very close relationship with Russia, and this created an international institute, incident. Most of us were not alive then. That was when President Dwight Eisenhower was president. But the real concern about that was that oil really only comes through two choke points. One is the Straits of Hormuz, which could be cut off by Iran, and the other is the Suez Canal. So there was some real controversy there, and it eventually was resolved, uh, maybe not to the liking of the Western powers, but at least uh, there was some stability. That brings us up to the 1967 Six-Day War. And in the 1967 Six-Day War, um, he attempted uh, through various actions to fight and, uh, against Israel, but actually lost. But something very interesting happened. Three days after the 1967 Six-Day War, he died. He had been a general, and he was replaced by another general by the name of Anwar Sadat. Now, the first thing Anwar Sadat did in Egypt was change the allegiance, not initially, but gradually from the Soviet Union to America. And so all of a sudden now we began to have what we felt was a little bit of a friend in the Egyptian area. But then in 1973, he, along with Syria, launched a surprise attack against Israel forces in an effort to regain the Sinai Peninsula that actually had been taken during the 1967 Six-Day War. Well, he lost. Israel won a military victory. Sadat was defeated. But because he had launched the war, he won a political victory. And so he was very popular in Egypt. But that was not to stay, because interesting left, just a few years later, he actually developed enough of a relationship with Israel that he flew to Israel and spoke in the Israeli Knesset. 
And this was the first time in this 33-year history that you had any kind of acknowledgement from an Arab country of even the existence, much less the legitimate existence of Israel. And so this was a cause for real disruptions in the Arab world. And then those of you that have been around a little bit longer might remember when I've got a picture up there of Andwar Sadat, Menachem Begin, and Jimmy Carter actually signed the Camp David Peace Accords. And so there is actually a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, which exists to this very day. This caused the Arab League to reject Egypt, and he went from being the great hero in Egypt now to, at least in some of the Muslim forces, being a man that uh, was somebody that they wanted to remove. And you might remember in 1981, there was a military officer who actually assassinated him in Cairo. Well, he had been a general. He was um, replaced by another general who has been in power up until recently, and that is Hosni Mubarak, who had served as president and commander-in-chief. He is no longer in power. As a matter of fact, he's on trial and uh, perhaps could even be executed. But uh, the big question now is, who will replace Hosni Mubarak? Good question. A couple of possible candidates that we might be able to work with and one candidate that we know we would really fear. One that we might be able to work with is a man by the name of Mohammed Al-Baradai. You might remember him because he won a Nobel Peace Prize. He was one that had actually done a lot of the work with the Energy Commission and looked at the possibility that the Iranians, first the Iraqis, then later the Iranians, were actually going to uh, develop a nuclear weapon. Uh, born in Egypt, educated uh, in Egypt as well as in America at New York University. He's not, certainly not a friend of ours, but he's also been attacked by many of the extremists, and at least as somebody we might be able to work with. Another individual, Amr Muhammad Moussa. Moussa was born in Egypt, Cairo, served as UN ambassador, also served for a while as a foreign affairs ambassador for Mubarak, and has served as the secretary of the League of Arab Nations. Again, not somebody we would necessarily agree with on every issue, but we might be able to work with. But if they are not elected, then the real concern is that um, we might see a much more radical kind of world in Egypt. A number of years ago, um, it was only about two years ago, I guess, Pew Research actually interviewed Egyptians to get their ideas. And they found that, first of all, 95% of Egyptians prefer religious ideas and believe that religion should play a large role in politics. Now, when they say religion, they're not talking about Christianity. There are about two and a half million Coptic Christians in Egypt. I'll talk more about them in just a minute. Uh, so there are some Christians there. The Coptic Christians tend to be more Orthodox, more like the Greek Orthodox. And even in Dallas, we have a Coptic church not far from where we live. So um, certainly there are some Christians, but most Egyptians are Muslims. So that is illustrated by the next points. 84% favor the death penalty for people who leave the Muslim faith. 77% think that thieves should have their hands cut off. 54% believe suicide bombing that kills civilians can be justified. Which causes a lot of people to suggest that maybe those would be in power would be the Muslim Brotherhood. Okay, my, now you've got to say, well, who are the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, the Muslim Brotherhood actually go back to the time I was talking about. After World War I, there was a, kind of a dismantling of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Turks, who had controlled that area, now it was dismantled. The British and others began to redraw lines. Matter of fact, the lines drawn for many of these countries, for example, in Iraq, were drawn by then the foreign minister of Britain, who was... Winston Churchill later went on to be prime minister, 
Winston Churchill drew the lines for many of the countries in the Middle East. And as a result, there was a reaction from what came to be known as the Muslim Brotherhood because they wanted to go back and reestablish what they called a caliphate. Okay, what's a caliphate? Well, a caliphate is the idea of having kind of an international body of Muslim law which was then implemented into these countries, which would give you what is called Sharia law. And so this is the attempt by the part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Their slogan is Al-Islam Hua Alar, which means Islam is the solution. And so when you talk about this, you have to understand that some of the ideas being presented by these Muslims, in particular, are ones that Americans haven't really understood. If you've ever seen any of these uh, pictures, especially when uh, Egypt was in turmoil, you probably saw this, where the two swords were crossed. Above is the Quran, below is the word prepare. Now, you might say, well, what does prepare mean? Well, it's the Arab word that appears on that, but it's actually taken from Surah 8 in the Quran. Prepare against them as you are able of force and calvary to terrorize Allah's enemies and yours. So it is a quote, essentially, from one of the verses of the sword that are found in the Quran, and I think illustrates that, again, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is sometimes portrayed as something like your chamber of commerce, maybe has some uh, intents that are a little more significant than that. The motto comes from Hassan al-Banna, who was the original founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, and it is uh, very simple. Allah is our objective, the Prophet is our leader, Quran is our law, Jihad is our way, dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. And the Muslim Brotherhood may only represent about 20% of the Egyptian population, but it is the most organized, and people wonder if it might ultimately be the great threat, because it is sometimes said, well, we'll just let people vote. Well, when we let people vote, they voted in Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And if we let people vote, they might vote in the Muslim Brotherhood. And right now, Egypt is still considered to be an ally of the country that receives the second highest amount of foreign aid from America is Egypt. Number one is Israel. Number two is Egypt. And so you can see that there are some real issues in that regard. But I do believe they've changed their strategy. Recently, one of the uh, Clinton administration officials is making comments about the fact that this is not a violent group. And I would agree, because I think the Muslim Brotherhood have come to recognize something very different. One of the guests on my program a while back actually uh, translated some of these Arabic statements, because I don't read Arabic, I couldn't translate it, but he does. And he said that one of the arguments that they're making in some of their literature is this. It is up to the Muslim Brotherhood to assess the situation before deciding the appropriate type of jihad. Now, what is jihad? Well, jihad is the Arab word that we oftentimes in our English versions of the Quran translate as to strive or to struggle. Obviously, jihad many times means a violent attack or a violent struggle, but it doesn't always mean that. If you go to Iran in their agricultural department, it's called the Ministry of Agricultural Jihad. That doesn't mean they're fighting with the plants out there, you know, trying to subjugate the wheat in the corn or something. No, it's just that they are struggling to advance, you know, their scientific discoveries. So here they talk about appropriate kinds of jihad. And they say in another passage, Muslims may find that jihad through persuasion or peaceful resistance is the best and most effective method. So I think the Muslim Brotherhood will be very different. 
in Egypt and Tunisia, they talk more about this idea of persuasive jihad. And that's very different than obviously the violent jihad you see of Hamas or Al-Qaeda. So I think some people are fooled and say, well, they're not the radical Muslims. Well, they have radical aims, but they are not using violence to achieve them, right? A way to illustrate that, since I have some missionaries here, if you had missionaries here from France, they would tell you that Muslims in France right now want to overtake the country, but they don't want to do it violently. They simply recognize that we are reproducing ourselves at a faster rate than most French people, and we are establishing enclaves in France, and eventually France will still have Paris. France will probably still have some French names. But a generation or two from now, French will not, France will not be very French. You know, when you hear about French youth, of, you know, of rebelling, uh, these are not people by the name of Francois or Jacques. These are people by the name of Ali and Mohammed. And so you can see that sometimes they have this idea of persuasive jihad. And I think that's exactly what might actually happen with the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, finally, and then I'll open up for some questions, and then we'll talk about heaven. Sorry, we'll go from Middle East to heaven, but that's just kind of the way we're going to have to do this today. But uh, let's talk again about some of the prophetic significance, because, you know, some of these events, I think, are beginning to have people say, well, okay, what about Ezekiel 38 and 39? Now, most prophecy speakers believe that Egypt will not come against Israel. And I'll explain that in just a minute, because in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it gives us a list of the countries that come against Israel. Egypt is not one of them. So that's caused people like, say, Joel Rosenberg and others to say, maybe they will keep that peace treaty. We'll see what that is. There are others that say, yeah, but if you look at Psalm 83, there Egypt is mentioned. And so maybe Psalm 83 correlates with Ezekiel 38 and 39, and so maybe Egypt is there. I'm trying to be fair to two different kind of intramural evangelical prophetic views. Let's look at each one of them in their detail. The first is that one in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And there, this is the book by Joel Rosenberg uh, called Epicenter. It predicts that there is a Russian dictator known as Gog. And the dictator is not named not Gog. It's not like we're looking for Vladimir Gog or Gog, uh, you know, whatever. But no, that's just a title. And he has an evil plan to attack Israel and seize its wealth. And so he builds a coalition. And interestingly enough, absent from that list is Egypt. You have many other countries. You have Magog, which has oftentimes been associated with Russia or the former Soviet Union, Russia and Tubal, also Moscow in that area. Persia, that's really simple because up until 1935, Iran was called Persia. So we know that's Persia. I mentioned Kush. I think that fits into Sudan and Ethiopia. We've already shown that Put is Libya. And one you have to add to the list is Turkey, probably Gomer. Some people have said Gomer is Turkey or Austria. I don't really want to get into that question, but I think Turkey is the most obvious one. And so you have kind of this Russian um, Muslim coalition. You might say, how does that fit? You know, well, you've got to recognize the former Soviet Union was full of Muslim countries, all the stand countries, right? Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan. You know, all of those were pretty much Muslim countries, and it is possible that even there could be later a Muslim leader, but you have this Russian-Persian coalition that comes against Israel and is destroyed. So that's kind of the standard interpretation, the one that I think most of us at Dallas Seminary would accept, you know. Joe can 
give a rebuttal if he wants. But there's another one that uh, has been out there for many years, uh, which is less acceptable, but it's certainly one that I want to be fair to. And that is people go back and look, well, at Psalm 83, it talks about this, these nations coming against Israel. Now, if you believe that happened in the past, I can't identify any time that, that would have been fulfilled in the past. But if you do, then it's not relevant. But if it's talking about the future, then it gives us a list of nations. And when I look at that, then it certainly does include some other countries. Um, that is Edom. You know, we know the Edomites were in Jordan all the way down to where Petra is. So that would be the Palestinians and the southern Jordanians. Those who were the followers of Ishmael, you had Isaac and Ishmael. The Ishmaelites are mostly identified as the Saudis because Ishmael settled in that area. Moab would be the Palestinians, the central Jordanians. Remember um, Sarah and Hagar, the Hagarenes. Hagar was identified with Egypt, so that might then put Egypt in there. Philistia, what were the Philistines? Well, that would be kind of where the Gaza Strip is. Tyre, we know where that is. That would be Hezbollah, northern Iraq. And then Amalek would be the rest of the Sinai Peninsula. So now you have everybody involved. But what is so striking is if you look at that list in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there are two countries that are notable by its absence. By the way, the two largest countries in the Middle East in terms of population. Iraq, well, Iran is the largest of the three, but uh, certainly two of the three largest ones, Iraq and Egypt, are missing from that list. But they are present there, and I think it gives you a little bit of an idea of at least um, what could happen prophetically in the future uh, in Egypt. You might say, well, where do you get the stuff about the Hagarines and everything? Well, it goes back to family feuds. Anybody ever like to watch the TV show Family Feuds? We had the first family feuds back in uh, Genesis, didn't we? Because think about this. You have the mothers, Sarah and Hagar. Well, when she leaves, she's banished by Abraham. That begins to be called the Hagarines, which would be Egypt. Then you have Isaac and Ishmael. When Ishmael leaves, later he settles in an area which we today call Saudi Arabia, in that whole Arabian Peninsula. Those are the Ishmaelites. Then you have Jacob and Esau. When Esau leaves, Esau then ultimately goes to Edom and the Edomites. And then you have all sorts of other groups there as well in Petra. And so some of his ancestors were people like Amalek. Who's Amalek? Amalek's who they fight. Uh, they fought when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. Remember, they had to fight Amalek and the Amalekites. Remember the battle they had? When Moses' hand was up, what? Okay, you know, Israelites prevailed, but eventually he gets tired of holding up his hand, he drops him down, and the Amalekites prevail. And then later after that, you go from Amalek to another king, which you see in 1 Samuel 15, Agag, the king there. That's where Samuel tells Saul to go and kill the Amalekites, Amalekites, but he saves Agag, and then later... Prophets had to just kind of cut him up, you know. And then later on, you have another person in his family line, which is Haman. Remember that in Esther 3. And then ultimately now, the, uh, the final ancestors of Esau were the Palestinians. There has been a battle between Jacob and Esau since the moment they were in the womb to the moment we are talking about history right now. Then you've got the Ammonites, you've got the Amalekites and all the Jordanians, and you can see that a lot of the conflicts we have in the Middle East go all the way back to family feuds in Genesis, don't they? Aren't you glad to have all this on the slide so you don't have to write all this down because that's what we're doing? Well, let's close this section and open up for some questions um, about prayer. I think certainly we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. 
Uh, certainly we should pray for the president, his cabinet, and the military because we are still fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. And certainly wisdom about what is happening in Tunisia, Yemen, but especially in Libya and Egypt. And then I mentioned these 2.5 million persecuted Christians, most of them Coptic Christians. And uh, this last year, New Year's Eve, a bombing of Saints Church in Alexandria. And certainly one of the great concerns that many of us have today is simply about uh, what would happen if indeed this whole area begins to explode. So let me open up for some questions for just a minute, if any of you have any quick ones, and I'll use that to switch over to our next topic, which I will try to go through as quickly as I have this one. But anybody have any particular questions they wanted to ask about Egypt or the Middle East? In 1948, Israel became a nation, according to what I understand. Yes. Uh, the question would be, in Daniel, it talks about Christ returning one generation after the formation of Israel. Is that an accurate interpretation, and what does one generation mean on a biblical standard? Yes, and that's the question some people have had, because you certainly had uh, prophecy speakers like Hal Lindsey, probably the best one, but others that would say, well, if indeed it is supposed to be one generation after the establishment of the nation of Israel, and if it's, that is the fig tree and all the aspects of that prophecy, then okay, 40 years after that, because usually a generation is 40 years, then Christ should return by 1988, and he did. No, he didn't, you know. So obviously some of that interpretation is incorrect. And I think it was based upon a couple of questionable assumptions. Number one, that a generation uh, meant exactly that, that the fig tree was exactly Israel, all those kinds of things that sort of uh, led people to believe uh, during the 1970s and 80s that Christ was going to return. And there was a book, uh, was it 88 Reasons for the Return of Christ in 88? Remember that one? And then that turned out to not be true. So then you had the 89 reasons for the why Christ is going to turn in 89. And last time I was down in Oakland, I spoke recently, as you know, at Chinese Independent Baptist Church, uh, the pastor down there, not the pastor in the Chinese church, but in another um, place, was predicting the end of the world, what is it, May, I think is what he was talking about. Now he's saying October. You know, sooner or later, one of these prophecy date setters are going to be right. But so far, everybody's been 100% wrong. So, obviously, uh, I come back to a very clear statement that Jesus makes. What's that statement? Nobody knows the time or the hour, the seasons, the hour, or the time. I think we have to just understand that any time could be the return of Christ. And frankly, I believe that he could return before we finish this talk. We could return a thousand years from now. I believe in the imminent return of Christ, and that means there's no other prophecy that need be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. Now, that being said, Susanna's ready for the rapture real quick, because ever she works with me, lives with me, hears all this negative stuff, and she is ready to go. Are you ready to go? You know, <laughs> which leads us uh, perhaps to our next topic, if you don't mind me getting into it. I'm going to keep the train moving here, because we have to go to the water fort pretty soon here. So let's talk about some of these afterlife experiences. How do we make sense of those? Well, I want to look at them in two levels. First of all, back in the 1980s, there was a book by uh, Dr. Well, first one by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, but then later, probably the best-selling book by Raymond Moody, and it sold about 13 million copies. It was called Life After Life. And what he found is that many times he would do interviews with people that had heard themselves pronounced dead. Then they would feel like they were coming out of their body. They'd have this out-of-body experience. Sometimes they'd feel like they were traveling down a long, dark tunnel. Maybe they'd see a review of their life past before them. And then sometimes they would communicate with a being of light who would then say, it's not your time to die and go back. 
And so he began to uh, produce these uh, stories in the book Life After Life, and a lot of people said, hey, everybody's having a positive experience. It must be compulsory heaven for everybody, except maybe Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan or something like that. And so these out-of-body experiences were being documented by more and more people that actually saw their bodies float above their own body, and they were seeing things. And at first people were saying, well, they're nothing more than hallucinations and that kind of stuff, but that was hard to explain because oftentimes they knew information that they would only know if they could see. You know, they could see the color of what people were. They could hear conversations that were outside of the room. And so now medical studies have come and actually studied what are called near-death experiences. And they find that anywhere from 11% to 30% of all who survive a cardiac arrest report some kind of near-death encounter. Now, the bottom line is that range is due to different studies. And in a minute, I'll explain why I think some are low and some are high. But let's put that on the table. And what is usually reported is their conscious mind appears to be independent of their body. They have some out-of-body experience where they see themselves from a perspective outside of their own physical body. Well, Dianish D'Souza has actually, as a Christian, written a book trying to pull a lot of this together. And he uses this to really attack the new atheists, because the new atheists say there's no evidence at all of life after death. And he says, yes, there is, even apart from the Bible. Let me set the Bible aside. We'll just talk about scientific evidence. He gives you all sorts of very good evidence for life after death. And there are all sorts of different ways that he does it. But he actually got interested in this when he actually dated Daisy. Dinesh D'Souza, as you might imagine, is from India. Daisy, as one of my friends said, she must be from the South. Yes, she's from the South. But the first time they met in Washington, D.C., because uh, Dinesh D'Souza at that time had worked in the Reagan administration, Daisy was talking about a car crash she had and survived when she was coming to Washington, D.C. And at one point, she's telling this story, and he says, well, you were in the car and a seatbelt. How did you see that? Well, my bo I was outside of my body. Whereupon, that's when Dinesh D'Souza said, oh, very good, and then didn't call her for three weeks, you know, because he, but then came to realize that her experience was very, very typical. So if you wanted to read, we're going to mention a number of Christian books, but this is one that really tries to take a very detailed look at uh, near-death encounters as well as other evidence, just other non-biblical evidence for the fact that you do have evidence for people that live beyond the grave. The concern that I have with a lot of these is, is that, first of all, you notice that many of these people have positive experiences. And how does that fit into the great white throne judgment? How does that fit into heaven and hell and all of that? And some, interestingly enough, I use these experiences to promote false theology. And probably a good example of that is Betty Eady's Embraced by the Light. She's Mormon in name only, but basically she says everybody's having a positive experience. There's no reason we should fear death. And the bottom line is, is that, well, if there's no reason for you to fear death, there's no reason for you to need a savior. And does that not look like the possibility of the ultimate spiritual conflict? Or counterfeit, I should say, but, you know, indeed that the issues that you're addressing right there raise real concerns. So I wrote a book called Life, Death, and Beyond, and I went through these stories that have come through and said that many cases you can explain them physiologically. That is, we know that when there is a lack of oxygen to the brain, cerebral anoxia, sometimes it creates this feeling like you're going down this long, dark tunnel. Sometimes it makes you even feel like you'll see a light. 
So some of that can be explained perhaps physiologically. Some of it psychologically. We know that some people that have never even been in life-threatening situations sometimes see a review of their life past before them. Some people that skid on ice and they don't even have a car crash just all of a sudden see images from their life past before them. So in some of that, it could be brought on just by stress, uh, various kinds of brain hormones. Then some of it could be pharmacological, that is, we know that a number of people were in various, various kinds of drugs that might have created something that looked like a hallucination. But even so, when we look at all of those, some of them eventually are paranormal. They involve some kind of spiritual entity, but what I point out is that spiritual entity could be God or it could be another being of light. Can you think of any possible candidates? Because the Bible does refer to that as well. And so the question you need to begin to ask is, first of all, did these people really die? Well, not death in the final sense. We're not talking about Lazarus here. I mean, these are people that maybe were resuscitated after a few minutes, which is a little different than being dead for three days. Okay, so first of all, they didn't die in the sense that we were, certainly they were closer to death than most of us in this room have been. Although, as I'm looking right now, some of you are getting real close. <laughs> the, uh, the brainwave activities are really doing, starting to go down here a little bit. Are there experiences like this in the Bible? I think we can say, well, what about this uh, person that said he was caught up in the third heaven? I think that was probably Paul. So maybe there is possibility of that. Uh, there's a point where John sees this vision. Did he go into heaven or just see the vision? So there may be something like that. But are there any unpleasant experiences, and could some of these experiences be a spiritual counterfeit? Well, let's answer each one of those. First of all, did these people really die? Well, I would have to say that Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Did any of these people face the judgment? I don't really see that. Uh, death and near-death experiences, I think, are very different. There's a difference between death and near-death. First of all, are these experiences like the Bible? Well, okay, we've got the widow of Zarephath, we've got the daughter of Jairus, the widow's son, certainly Lazarus. We have some examples sort of like this, but very different than what we're seeing here. Are there any unpleasant experiences? Well, this book came out a number of years ago by Dr. Maurice Rawlings. We did a film in which we did an extensive interview with him because Dr. Rawlings is a cardiologist. He was evaluated a man who had a chest pain. He had him on a treadmill, and all of a sudden he <laughs> drops over, and he's had cardiac arrest. So then he's now doing cardiopulmonary resuscitation to, resolve, you know, to revive him. As soon as he kind of comes around, he would reach for some things to stabilize him, let him go back, his eyes would roll back, and then he would get him back again. And finally, when he got him stabilized, this guy's pulling on him saying, don't let me go, don't let me go back to hell. And he was having a horrible, hellish kind of experience. Well, he put him in the hospital. The next day he has a notepad, and he's going to go and talk to this guy and say, what kind of experiences did you see in hell? The guy's response was, what hell? I never saw hell. What? And so they, he came to document that many people, I think, have suppressed those unpleasant experiences. And so as a result, we see that I think it could be the ultimate spiritual counterfeit. Because after all, we're told that we're supposed to test the spirits. And is there somebody that disguises themselves as an angel of light? Satan does. Next verse goes on and says that his associates disguise themselves as messengers of righteousness. So are there true experiences? No doubt about that. I want to talk about some of those, but you know whether it's D.L. Moody or others that at their deathbed have seen visions. Remember Stephen when he's being stoned? What? He sees a vision. So I think there are true experiences, but 
I think we have to be careful to recognize that just as there might be a valid experience, there's also a counterfeit. And so that's why I think I want to be real careful when I start talking about these Christian experiences. Okay, let's look at them. Probably the best known one up until recently, now the heaven is for real, is sort of supplanted that. But the one that almost everybody used to talk about is Don Piper's 90 Minutes in Heaven. Baptist pastor, I've done an interview face-to-face with him, and he was uh, leaving a Baptist conference, was going over a bridge, which was in uh, kind of the, well, it was kind of the central Texas area, and he had a fray, uh, Ford Escort, and this 18-wheeler just comes right over him. And so the roof crushed, the steering wheel impaled his chest, the dashboards broke his legs, and uh, the policeman went over there and didn't find a pulse, so they just described, said that he was dead. And so at this point, you know, he is uh, basically there. They put a tarp over him, but a fellow pastor who had been behind, he'd left the conference a little bit later, came up, and he prayed over him, and at one point actually held his hand and after 90 minutes, after being dead, said, wait a minute, this guy is alive. And so they actually then went um, in, into the hospital. And then Don Piper says that, you know, the moment he got hit, he was immediately, he said, in heaven. And he said that he saw all sorts of things that were amazing and beautiful. He had met family members, such as his great-grandmother. He joined a heavenly choir that proceeded into the gates of heaven. And he had this really incredible kind of heaven experience. Okay, now there have been some people, Randy Alcorn in particular, has written probably the best book on heaven that's ever been written, uh, who said, well, I've got a few questions. And one of those is, is that one of the things Don Piper says is that there was no sense of time in heaven. But if you think about that, for example, in uh, uh, page 24, he said that time had no meaning. Another place, there was no time. But there's a couple of places in Scripture where time seems to be very important. Certainly in Isaiah 6, you see that. And there's a place during these various judgments. You have the seals, judgment, the bold judgments, and all the trumpet. But there's a time in which there's a silence in heaven for a half an hour. That's what John describes it. Now, maybe there's a timelessness there, but one of the questions people have had is just the fact that he said that there was sort of no meaning of time in heaven. And in a sense, if you come out of time into eternity, maybe that's the case, but that's a question that some people have asked. The other was that Don Piper claims that none of the hymns that filled the air were about Jesus' sacrifice or death because there were no sad songs in heaven. Well, again, that could have just been a sampling error in the short time he was there. He didn't hear any others. But you think about this in Revelation 5-9 where, you know, you have the song of the four living creatures, the 24 elders that proclaim, for you were slain and ransomed. There's a place where they're in heaven where the, the, the saints that have been martyred know what's happening on earth, which gets you back to the question, do people in heaven know what's going on on earth? Well, we can have that debate someday, but that was another question that he had. And also people have said, you know, he never saw Jesus in heaven. And he explains, if I'd actually seen God, I would never have wanted to return. But still, some people have had a little bit of question about his book, but uh, you can read it and find it yourself. But now the best-selling book is a book that nobody experienced, uh, expected to be so uh, successful. I just met the other day the book author, um, or the book, what is the way they call that? The author, um, the person that obtains the author, whatever, they got a fancy word for it, uh, that actually had talked to uh, Todd Burpo about doing the book. 
acquisitions editor. There's the word I was looking for. But anyway, if you're not familiar with that, Colton Burpo, three years old, son of Todd and Sonia Burpo, had again a kind of a near-death encounter, but it was sort of strange because he really wasn't at death. He did have a ruptured appendix, but as he began to explain what happened, uh, his parents were absolutely astounded. Because um, here he told, for example, about the fact that he had sat in Jesus' lap. Now, Colton knew nothing about his sister who had died um, basically as a miscarriage, and yet he met his sister who died in his mother's womb. He said he met his great-granddad who told him things about his father that his father never told him. And so once again, you have the experience that we find where these people know things that they shouldn't have known from normal means. And so certainly that has been the case. Um, interestingly enough, this young lad said that all the people had wings of various sizes. Okay, what do we think about that? I'll get to that in just a minute. He said all the people had a light over their head. Is that like a halo or something like that? He said nobody was old in heaven. And he also uh, had an understanding at least of the fact that God is a trinity. Okay, those are at least a few things. But again, here are some of the questions that people have asked. First of all, Jesus is portrayed as the only way to heaven, and Colton said he saw marks on his hands and feet. He also said that Jesus had the most beautiful eyes, a beard, a white gown, a purple sash, and a crown. That seems to correlate pretty well with the book of Revelation. Um, but again, there are questions that people have asked. Number one, what about the wings? You know, everyone, including Colton, has wings in heaven. Do we find that? You know, one of the questions I deal with in my spiritual warfare book is a whole chapter on angels. There are so many misconceptions about angels, and one of those is and not. We know that some angels have wings, seraphim and cherubim, but we don't know if all of them do. There's no evidence that human beings have wings, and so that fits, seems to fit a little bit more with the lore in some of the kind of the popular views of heaven. So people don't know what to make of that. The other idea is, as they said, they had light over their head. Is this a halo? And once again, that fits kind of the popular lore about people in heaven. Certainly a popular view in Greek and Roman culture, even in the Middle Ages. But again, you've, just, you've got some questions about that. But again, we're talking about somebody who's three years old, and maybe that was the best way he could describe some of the things he saw. One last one real quickly, and then I'll open up for some questions again. Uh, this is a story about the boy who came back from heaven, and Kevin and Alex, who at that time was age six, were involved in a car crash, and it was an internal decapitation. The boy is in a wheelchair, and yet he says that he saw angels catch his daddy. I suspect, I'm pretty sure if I remember this right, Dad was not wearing a seatbelt, so he was literally thrown from the car. But uh, little Alex remembers the angels catching his father, who survived quite well. And he also remembered that his father was talking to a man in a blue suit by a helicopter. Well, Alex was, uh, you know, completely comatose. And yet he remembered this man in a blue suit. Well, his mother said, well, that can't be right because the people that are working in ambulances, they probably wear a white suit, goes back and finds out a blue suit. Uh, so you've got some things that, uh, again, correlate very well. But again, Alex says that he, when he went to heaven, he saw God's palace. He said the gate was tall, it was white, it was shiny. He heard what he called unearthly music. In other words, he said, I'd heard music I'd never heard on earth. Again, at six years old, I mean, how much of experience do you have? But nevertheless, it was very different. And he says the angels took him to Jesus. 
So, again, there are just all sorts of uh, books that are coming out right now, a whole series of books that have come out by Christians called Heaven and the Afterlife, another one called Encountering Heaven and the Afterlife by Jim Garlow, or just an attempt to, again, document many of these out-of-body experiences that people have had, these near-death encounters. And you've got a whole cottage industry of these books of people that have said they've gone to heaven. And I guess what I would want to say is I still have some questions about it, but the real bottom-line issue is simply this. I trust in a resurrection after three days, not a resuscitation after three minutes, even one after 90 minutes. And uh, that's where I think we should put our trust. But at the same time, a lot of people that have looked at these, people like Jim Garlow, Randy Alcorn, and others, said they're kind of interesting. Don't know what to make with some of the things about angels and wings and halos, but nevertheless... Uh, certainly there seem to be a lot of evidence of afterlife experiences. But the thing I think we have to be careful of is that I think Satan is using this as well to deceive people. I've seen people handing out copies of Betty Eady's book or Life After Life in Hospital saying, oh, don't worry, um, life on the other side is wonderful. But if you are convinced that you are going to, everybody's going to the sweet compulsory heaven, then it cuts off the need for the Savior. And I think that might be the ultimate spiritual counterfeit. And guess what? If I'm not a good radio guy, I ended at 3 o'clock. <laughs> Let's see if we uh, can keep we the time for another questions, questions or two. I'll take a few questions real quickly. But um, I can't answer all of them because I don't have answers for all of them. But I did want you to at least know a little bit more about some of these books that are documenting afterlife experience. You talk about uh, two studies between 11 and 30 percent of people have these experiences. Are there any um, characteristics of these people? Are they... Um, all Christian or no they're not okay very good question because what you have is those studies came from actual technical medical journals and uh, there is actually a whole area of near-death studies and so they look at them not with a Christian perspective they just simply say how many people have had experiences and I think that's the reason you get the variation I think people that have had negative experiences like we just talked about with Maurice Rollins beyond death door there's some people that have gone to very unpleasant almost hellish kind of experiences and the next day when somebody says well did you have an out-of-body experience they go no I don't remember anything and that fits into the 11 percent that you know that only a small percentage, only one out of ten, remember it. Uh, but then in other cases where they maybe have had positive experiences, that gets into your 30%. So I think what's happening is, is people are either del- uh, being deceived by Satan and he erases it from their mind. That's a possibility. But I think it's also possible that when you've had such a horrible experience, if you've ever known anybody who's been involved in a car crash or a crime, maybe they've been raped or they've been murdered or their friends have been murdered or they've been mugged or something like that, you know that what happens is oftentimes you suppress those memories. So I think that's really what's going on. And these studies almost never try to find any correlation between Christian convictions and that because the secular people studying these until fairly recently, have almost always been people that, to put it mildly, could not sign the doctrinal statement to Living Hope Bible Church, right? (laughs) And that's why I think we have to be very careful about those. Are there genuine experiences? No doubt. Uh, Did Colton see something? Certainly he did. Did Don Piper see something? Certainly he did. But um, again, part of that is based upon your memory. Can everybody remember what they dreamed last night? That was just within a few hours ago. So you see the problem You're dealing with memories, you're dealing with interpretations and things of that nature. So that's why I think I'd always want to be careful about trying to believe too much. But at the same time, they're really encouraging. You know, Suzanne and I have the books, and 
you can read them, and they're fascinating stories. And Don Piper has used this uh, very effectively as an evangelist. And I think uh, Colton's father, Todd Burpo, is using that to bring people to the Lord. And so I think that's good. But I want them to trust in God's word, not an experience that either they or their son had. That's the concern I want to make sure that we make clear. I think everybody's ready for a break, but I ended at 3 o'clock, okay. so I hope you so, got as much as you came for. Brian and, Christensen came in and told me that the power is on, the pool is on, so no more water for it. The kids can go to the pool. We're back on schedule, and 5.30 is dinner, so we'll see you then. We're going to have just a free time now and give Kirby a break. If you have any questions, feel free to ask him. Otherwise, we're all excused for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs>